We um, conclude this week our month of study. We're trying to be worthy of Him in our study. And hopefully you've learned something, whether from me, from preacher, or from Dr. House during the Bible conference. I've learned some stuff and I've been very appreciative of the emphasis of just really calling Christians back to what is essentially one of the most important things you can do as a Christian, which is just study and know your Bible. And the more you study and know it, the more you'll begin to live it out. And as we live out God's Word, we'll look a whole lot more like Jesus Christ. See, it was not God's plan for us to just guess at what Jesus would do in certain situations, but the better you get to know Him through His Word, the more you'll behave like Him even when you're not necessarily thinking about it. Now, you'll be Holy Spirit-led in that moment. And that's why the Bible's so important in our life, is so that we study to know how Christ would act in every situation. So, we conclude this week, uh, our month of study, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1, Mark chapter 7. The Bible says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees. And when the Bible says that, it's usually pretty good to pay attention to the following things that are going to take place, because usually... There's a confrontation that is about to ensue. And we learn many things about Jesus during these confrontations. In fact, one of the most uh, obvious things that I learn is how to deal with critics. You know, that's not always an easy thing to do. People that criticize you. And Christ was criticized by these Pharisees at all points. and, And Christ handled himself graciously at all points. You see, you don't have to get mean to those that are mean to you. Christ didn't, and we learn many things from these type of conflicts. Certainly we learn quite a bit from this one. The Bible says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. And that's what critics do. They find fault. In fact, critics are looking for fault. Critics rarely see the good because they're looking for the faults. Here, that's true in in Christ's situation. These people found fault. That's what the Bible says. The Bible goes on to say in verse number 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And that's not really the question that they're asking. They're not asking, why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders? The real question, if you'll read into the Pharisees, is this. Why don't they do what we do? Why aren't they more like us? They're critics, and they're, in fact, these have been sent for the purpose from Jerusalem to find fault. They've now caught Christ's disciples at fault. They begin to question Him. And they say, why do your disciples not honor the tradition of the fathers? But really what they're saying is, why are they not more like us? That's what critics do. The Bible goes on to say in verse number 6, He answered and said unto them, 
Well hath Esaias prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whosoever curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. I want to read once again verse number 13, and I want you to pay tremendous attention to verse number 13. We'll study the entire passage. But sometimes we get lost in words and language that we don't understand as we read the Bible. Certainly that is the case as we uh, try to read through Corbin, not even a word that we're familiar with. And we, we try to understand what Moses was saying and what they were feeling. And we get lost in some of that. But I want to redirect your attention to verse number 13, which is super important for the sermon this evening. The Bible says, making the word of God of none effect. Through your tradition. Heavenly Father, please be with us in this brief time that we have together. May your Holy Spirit be upon me and may it be upon the hearers in this room that we would understand what you would have us to do with the sermon tonight, with the scripture tonight. I ask, Lord, in your precious Son's name, Amen. The Bible claims over and over again its power and potency in the Christian life. See, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is quick and powerful in the Christian life. In fact, the Bible even says in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, It shall not return me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. You understand, God tonight makes no bones about the power of His Word. In fact, He even says, Whatever I desire that my Word would accomplish, it will always do. It never fails, it never has flaws, it is perfect, and it is powerful. Can you say amen? amen? I'm afraid that but by the lack of amens tonight, we may not believe that. You cannot survive in the Christian life without God's word being effectively implemented in the Christian life. So, when I read verse 13, and it says that there was a group of individuals 
that regardless of God's promise of power, and regardless of God's promise that it will never return void unto him, and it will always accomplish that which he desires, when I read verse 13 and it says, you have made the word of God of none effect, I take Paul's. Because that is not in harmony with the way that God uses his word. See, God's desire for his word in your life is that it would change you, that it would move you, that it would make you the individual that he so desperately wants you to be. But there was a group of individuals who it was powerless to, these Pharisees. So I think it would behoove us tonight to study out what their mistake was and make sure we're not making the same mistake. It was a while back, my friend Cody Sears was getting married. There was some confusion. He had asked me to uh, be in the wedding. And I remember we were playing golf in Glenrose about a week before the wedding. And just in conversation and passing, I said, Hey, Cody, uh, uh, by the way, I haven't heard anything about your bachelor party. I really haven't heard anything about anything that's going on other than just the date and time that we're supposed to be there. Cody, by the way, who is your best man? And he kind of giggled. And he said, you are. And I said, well, I didn't know that. I mean, you didn't tell me that. He said, no, I told you. To this day, I still think he's wrong. But either way, that's not really the point. I was Cody's best man. So I I had to figure out a way to kind of make my my friend's last bachelor week of his life a memorable one. So uh, And beating me at golf was pretty much a common occurrence for him. So this was not a special day that particular day. So, I mean, I had to figure out something to do with Cody. And I remember I was planning these types of things out. And I I realized that as the... the, uh, uh, what is it? Not maid of honor, not man of honor, not grooms, not groomsman. What is it? Best man. Sorry, I'm not very good at this wedding thing. But the, as the best man, which it's odd that you would be the best man in another man's wedding, don't you think? I mean, I, I feel like in this case it's accurate, but I'm just saying uh, it's odd that you would be the best man at a wedding. Anyway, I remember trying to figure out something to do. We, we figured out something to go do for him and And I realized as the day came closer, I had a few responsibilities that I was supposed to, you know, handle the day of the wedding. You know, there's this thing that some people ask their best man to give a speech. I'm not much of a speech maker. If it doesn't have much to do with that book, I really don't care to get up in front of people, honestly. That's the way I feel. But if it has to do with that book, man, I'll get up in front of you and talk all day long. Or as long as I can think of stuff to say. Amen? But uh, I realized that Cody had kind of mentioned he wanted a speech, and so I was trying to think of some things to say. And we took a lot of thought, and I came up with just a few things. There just wasn't much, honestly, but uh, I thought of some stuff. But not only did I realize I had the responsibility of the speech. You see, if you're in your best buddy's wedding, you've got to mess with him a little bit, don't you? I mean, you've got to somehow make this day memorable. And so I, I kind of devised a plan. Uh, certainly there were some guys that are in the church. There were, the JT was in the wedding, I believe. Uh, there was Jared, I think, was maybe in the wedding. I can't remember. There's a bunch of us that kind of already knew each other. And, and so we kind of devised a plan. And I, I uh, came up to Cody at the reception and said, Cody, you know, I'm just trying to help you out. 
Cody, can I get your keys so that we can pull your car around so when y'all do this whole leave and go to the honeymoon thing, it's just right there. You don't have to worry about it. So, oh, yeah, man, thanks. That's going to be great. He handed me his keys. And I said, sucker. <laughs> you know, it was great. I think I got JT and I got some of the other guys around. I said, no, I can't do this. But I need you guys to pull his truck around and I need you to disconnect a battery cable. So they got out there and they realized that his truck had, you know, you had to do it the special way. But, but eventually they got the, 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 the battery cable unhooked. And man, oh, I was so ready for this. It was, I was looking forward to this face. You know, everybody's, yay, Cody, you're the man, Cody. You married way over your head, Cody. We can't believe we actually got you with somebody, Cody. It's great. You know, it's awesome. And I'm sitting there with my hands in my pockets thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. He takes his bride over to the passenger seat, you know, with a big old smile on his face. She's got the big smile on her face. He opens the door like a gentleman, and for the last time ever, I'm sure. But uh, he opens the door. Man, she gets in the car. He helps get her train in the car. Man, he's just so excited. He closes the door and walks back around. He's like, yeah, I got it, man. I'm going to the honeymoon. This is going to be awesome. Man, he he, uh, got in his passenger seat. And I will never forget the look on his face when he turned that key and nothing happened. Oh, man, was it great to see Cody's face just go to... What an awful time for this to happen. <laughs> oh, it was so great. Even one of the uh, uh, bridesmaids came up to me later. She's like, who thought of that? And I'm like, oh, I, I did. She's like, by the way, that was awesome. I mean, everybody loved it. It was great. I mean, that is awesome. You know, the problem was not that Cody's truck did not have the potential to be powerful. The problem was something had limited the power available to the truck. In this case, in our Bible passage, there's a group of men who have the Word of God. In fact, I would even submit to you that these men knew the Word of God more thoroughly than anyone in their day. They were the studiers of God's Word. They were the keepers of God's Word. And yet, when they read God's Word and they began to turn the key, if you will... Nothing happened, and it became of none effect to them. I want to share with you just three items that may make this happen in your life like it happened in theirs. Number one, notice with me if you will, when we become determined in overseeing the implementation of our preferences. Here's what's happening. These men have taken God's law, have taken God's word, and they have added to it to the point where keeping the law had become a labor. It was a struggle for people to do so. In fact, this particular passage is over uh, ceremonial cleansing, and that had to do with you going in to uh, uh, sit down and worship before God or eat a feast unto God. And it is Bible and it is law. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17, 
And every soul that eateth that which dieth of itself. In other words, they were doing something that would make them unclean. The Bible says, or that which was torn with beasts, whether it be of your own country or a stranger. He shall both wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. Then shall he be clean. You see, in Leviticus, there is ceremonial cleansing taught. Even in Exodus chapter number 19, the Bible says, The Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Ceremonial cleansing was taught within the law. But this idea of constantly having to wash yourself was not at all taught. In fact, I read one Bible commentator that said it was these men were known for the absurd amount of times they had to wash their hands each day. It was said that if one of these men would get up and wash his hands, then that man and, and that man stayed in solitude all day, he would be okay. But the very moment he left his house, before he came home and said a prayer or ate a meal, he must wash his hands again for being re- rendered unclean because of all the people he came in contact with that day. It was added to the law. It wasn't even something in the law. And let me show you this in verse number 4. The Bible says... And when they came from the market, except they wash, they eat not. Now, we we understand that to mean that these men, when they went to the market, they had to wash themselves before they returned because it signified any place of concourse where there were people of all sorts. And it might be supposed some heathen or Jews under a ceremonial pollution By coming near to them, they thought themselves were polluted. Now, what that means is they went to the market and they were looking for an orange, we'll say. Okay, how many of y'all love H-E-B? I love H-E-B until the youth department got kicked out of their parking lot the other night for blitzing for the rodeo. But I'll look over that because they have bigger aisles and more checkout stands than Walmart. Amen. But it's like you going into... Uh, Walmart or uh, H-E-B, you needing a banana or an orange, you going over there and, and you're trying to feel which one is more ripe and you're thumping it. You know, I think that's more a watermelon thing, but I don't know how to find a good orange. So you're, you're trying to figure out the way you're YouTubing. What does a good orange look like? And you're trying to figure it out. And here comes this person right next to you. I mean, you can tell this person's lived a really, really rough life. I mean, you can tell. I mean, they they smell like alcohol and smoke. They're struggling. You can tell. They're angry at the world. You can tell they're most likely not saved. And there you sit, standing at the same orange deal as they are. In a Pharisee's mind, this interaction with this individual made them unclean. The Bible goes on to say in verse number 4 that they did this with the washing of vessels and pots and tables. Now what this means is anything that was made by a heathen, they rendered unclean until they were able to clean it. Have y'all ever, you know, do y'all remember in elementary school when something could get cooties? Do y'all remember that? It's like... Ew, she touched that. It's got kitties. You know, y'all remember that? And, and, and that's, as ridiculous as it sounds, 
That's what these men were saying. This pot was most likely made by a heathen, therefore I must wash it before I can use it. It's the same type of attitude that occurs with another Pharisee in the Bible. When he enters the temple of God and he looks up to God and he at the top of his lungs says, God, I thank thee that I am not like other sinners. And going through the list of all the wrong sins that are in society, he looks over and he sees a publican standing afar off and he says, And God, most of all, I thank you that I'm not like that publican. It's that attitude. And every time they washed their hands, it was not out of honor of God. It was out of spite of people that needed God. They considered themselves far greater religious giants than other people. What a terrible spirit. And because of this spirit, they instituted additional laws that frankly made them feel good about who they were. The only way that I can equate this to modern day society is to try to explain to you the difference between a conviction and a preference. Look, them washing their hands was a good thing. I mean, I think even in their limited medical studies, they, they, they may not have had this information, but we now know that washing your hands kills germs. And, 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 and parents, you're probably wise if you teach your children to wash their hands before they eat. These are good things and these are good principles, but there is a difference between preferences and convictions. And when we get this off skew, what happens is we become the police, if you will. We become the overseers that just point out every time somebody else doesn't do what we normally do. We point out when somebody else does not abide by our preferences. Did you see the other night that old Julie went to the movie theater? Can you believe she went to theater seven? I mean, theater seven had a rated G movie, but theater eight, boy, you could, I mean, you could probably hear the cursing through the wall. Oh, Julie, man, we need to pray for Julie. I'm obviously talking about you, Miss Creamer. Amen. <laughs> And, and as crazy as that sounds, there's a difference between preference and convictions. And when we get this line confused between doctrine and traditions of men, we become the overseers of it. Because I tell you right now, God isn't because he was not the author of it. God oversees judgment based upon his word, not, a bit, not based upon your opinion. So what's the difference between a conviction and a preference? How do we draw convictions? How do we draw preferences? Let me explain to you the way that I do it, and maybe it'll be a help to you, and then I'll give you some examples, okay? Bible doctrines should equate convictions. Bible doctrines should equate convictions. And, and frankly, convictions are non-negotiable. If you want to meet with me about one of my convictions, you can talk to me until you're red in the face about how mean I am, how, 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 how ridiculous of a belief it is. But my convictions are not founded in preferences or things that I think are beneficial. My Bible convictions are founded in Bible doctrine. 
You say, what would one of those be? And I know this is not going to be popular. Alcoholism for me is a biblical conviction. And there are, and in our society and in Christianity, there has been a a chasing of the world in this particular thought process. Now we have preachers that are alcoholics. Now we have preachers that openly drink in front of their congregation. I don't understand it because the Bible tells us wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that we are not even to look at it when it turneth red, when it turneth itself awry in the cup. We are not to have a part in that. The Bible tells us that we are not to be a, a, a drunk with wine wears an excess, but we should be filled with the Spirit. And you can think whatever you want about that verse, and you can interpret that verse however you want, but the way I interpret that verse is anything that could influence you outside the Holy Spirit of God is detrimental for the Christian life. And that goes beyond just alcohol, that goes to uh, marijuana, that goes to uh, a drug use. Anything that convinces you and persuades you to act outside of your normal mind is not God honoring. And if a man with the faith like Noah can be reduced to nothing with alcohol, who do you think you are to play with the stuff? You see, people say, well, Brother Andrew, I I only do it in social circles. I do it in moderation. I hear you. And that is the Christian thinking that is chasing the world. And it will not be too long before we're, we're at where the world is now as they progress farther than what we're willing to go. And you say, Brother Andrew, I only do it socially. I don't do it in, in, in large amounts. Okay, listen to me. If you'll do it for fun, you'll do it in desperation. And when you're in desperate times, the limits don't seem to apply. Are you with me? See, there's a difference than being with friends and, and, and just kicking one back, as some would say, and allowing that to just be a time of release that's one thing, and, and, and Christians have allowed that type of thinking, but it is such a foolish way of thinking. And if you read through Proverbs, man, the Bible says, whoever deals with wine is not wise. Whoever plays with this stuff is not wise. So a foolish way of thinking is this. Oh, it's permissible for me in, in moderation. Okay, but what about when your husband dies in a car accident? Let's get real. What about when your wife looks at you and says, I don't love you anymore? What used to be for pleasure now comes around to relieve your pain. And you say, I I don't get drunk with this stuff. When in times of desperation, the limits are removed. And I promise you it is in those times you'll find You're looking for strength in places that you should not be looking. Many times that you find yourself at the bottom of a bottle trying to find meaning in life. And it's a shameful place for a Christian to be. 
That is why I stand on a biblical conviction that is unchanging and unwavering. Do you know, late in the book of Proverbs, the Bible says that wine is not something that princes should be involved with? What, per se, would you call the child of a king? A prince? I'm a child of the king. A child of the King, with Jesus my Savior, I'm a child of the King. Do we just sing that or do we believe it? Because when you're a child of the King, you become a prince. And the Bible says that princes should have no partaking with wine. So that's a biblical conviction for me. You with me? I'm not trying to make you mad. If you have a different conviction than that, I would like you to prove it biblically and believe it biblically. But uh, that's why I believe the way that I do. It's unchanging. What, what you believe is not going to change me on that, okay? I also have a preference to dress nice when I come to church. Now listen very carefully. It is a preference. And there's a big difference between a doctrine and a preference. Let me tell you the reason it's a preference and a preference alone. There is one group of people who dressed up to come to church in the Bible. Do you know who it was? The Pharisees. In fact, they dressed themselves in long robes to show everybody who they were. It's the same attitude that we just studied here. Now, I'm not modeling my life after them, certainly. There's one people that dress up to come to church. The book of 1 Peter tells us that women, specifically in this context, but I believe it's a broad application in a broad context, women were not to be so focused on the adorning of their outward appearance, like gold and 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 and. and flamboyant apparel, but the Bible says they should be more focused on the adorning of the heart. So, are you telling me that God is only concerned with what your heart looks like? I believe I can prove that to you biblically. But, now listen, this is why it's a preference and not a conviction. When Moses was to receive the law of God, he looked at Moses and he said, Moses, present yourself to appear before me. In fact, he gave specific instructions to Moses on how he was to appear before him. And he said, Moses, when you get up to come up to me, don't let anyone see you. Don't let anyone talk to you. Don't let anyone look at you. You come up sight unseen, just you and you alone. So, that means that God is at least somehow concerned with the way we present ourselves to Him. And the Bible also says that a good man, if you know the verse, quote it with me, a good man out of the treasure of his heart will bring forth good fruit. Huh. So, if I am to be concerned solely with the way my heart comes to church. And, and church, listen to me. We don't do a good enough job at this. Probably many of us find ourselves in a trap where we are more focused on the color of our necktie or, or the, the appearance of our outward dress and not nearly as focused on the heart when we come to church. 
So we are to be focused on the heart, but the Bible teaches us that out of the heart flows the issues of life. So, so I believe that your outward appearance is a direct indication of the inward heart. It's a reflection. So if I come to church unkept, uncared for, unprepared outwardly, chances are that's the same condition my heart is in. So I have a biblical preference. Something that I believe is a theme throughout the Bible that I draw a preference from. Are you with me? I'm not trying to offend anyone this evening. And if you have a different preference than me, well, that's okay. That's, that's just fine. But I'll tell you this, as pastor of this church, our leadership will abide by my preference. And our choir will abide by my preference and our band will uh, abide or whatever we call them now. We don't want to sound too contemporary, but our group of people that play musical instruments, those people will abide by my preferences because I am the leader of this church and I want them to look like my leadership in this church. You with me? Now, if you come to church differently and you have a different preference, well, I cannot stand in judgment of you. Now, listen. But what happens when we confuse these lines of preferences and convictions is we do police them. We sit on the back row and we lean over and we say, can you believe Susie is wearing what she's wearing today? You know what you are? You're policing something that's not even biblical. You're policing your preference and you're placing it upon somebody and they might have an entirely different preference. One of the reasons that God's word had become no effect to these men is because they became the overseers of their own preferences. And they made for the doctrine of God their tradition of men. That's not the way it's supposed to work. How about we let the Bible speak where the Bible speaks and let the Bible be silent where the Bible is silent and each of us live out what this book says. Can we agree to do that? What we must do is make sure that we do not become the overseers of implementing our own preferences. Number two, I want you to see this. If we are to make the word of God of none effect to us, we will become distracted in our pursuit of the Lord. Because as we police these preferences, they become priority in our life. You understand, it's more important to us that Sister Susie would come to church the way she should come to church than it is what God can be doing in my heart today. It's more important to us that that everybody agree with our biblical preferences than it is for us to just have a worship time with God. And we become distracted from the real purpose of church and the Christian life. This is the sole duty of man, to know God. Listen to me. There is no higher calling in this world than knowing Jesus, so that when you stand before him in heaven, he's not a stranger. You have the relationship. There is no higher calling than that. 
And, and I believe church is an atmosphere where you can know more about Jesus. I believe your personal time with God is a worshipful time where you can know more about Jesus. But when we begin enforcing our own preferences, we become distracted from what the real goal is. We become police for everyone else. We make the law some type of semblance of our achievement for God. You know the Bible says about the law? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law fell short when Jesus stepped into the picture. It only delivered us to look into the wonderful face of a Savior who could provide everything we need for the Christian life. The law was weak, but where the law was weak, grace was great. And it looks at Jesus and says, I'm not worthy to gain one soul entrance into heaven, but you gain every soul entrance into heaven. The law was weak. Galatians chapter 5, in fact, the church of Galatia struggled with this concept of law and their relationship with Christ. Galatians 5, 4 says this, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now, many people have perverted that Bible passage, but what it means is there was a group of people who had tasted of God's salvation and they had gone back to the law as some semblance of achievement in the Christian life. But once you're saved, a system of rule keeping cannot be your litmus test for whether or not you're pleasing God with your life. We rob baby Christians of their privilege to learn God's will for their own life when we immediately begin to thrust upon them our preferences. Well, if you're going to come to church, you probably need to have a comb over. Look, I don't like a comb over. My hair just sticks like this permanently, all right? If you're going to come to church, we probably need to get you a necktie. If you're going to come to church, you probably need to go soul winning with us on Saturdays. And we rob baby Christians of this opportunity to get their face in the book and just learn what God's will is for them. And, and, and when, when, when rubber meets the road, they're borrowed convictions and not a burdened convictions. You understand. These men had become distracted. Verses 6 and 7, Jesus condemns these men and he says, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. These people had talked a big game, but had nothing to back it up. The Bible says in Philippians 3 verse 9, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is of faith through Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The law has yet to impute righteousness to any man. And that's large Bible language, but... What it's saying is, the law never yet made one single man righteous. The system of do this and do this and don't do this and don't do this and you better wear 
you better shine your shoes. I'll never forget, I was preaching in a preaching contest when I was younger, and I got marked down on my attire because my shoes weren't shined. Are you kidding me? I was 13 and more concerned about going and hanging out with the girls at youth camp than I was being in a preaching contest on Monday afternoon at youth camp. But now I'm getting marked off for my shoes being shined. What it is, is it's a system of do's and do's and don'ts and don'ts. And the law has yet to ever make one man righteous. But every man that enters into salvation by the precious blood of Jesus Christ... He has made every man righteous. In fact, the Bible says we are clothed in his righteousness. We are draped, covered, and, 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 and just absolutely overwhelmed by the righteousness of our Lord Jesus. The law can't do that for you. So why do we act as if, what's going on with Mike? My mic? Can anybody see that? I don't know. I don't know. The law cannot do for you what Christ did for you, which was make you righteous. But I see it time and time again, Christians get saved and some preacher in some pulpit begins to dictate to them how their life is to be lived. And we play this game of Christian connect the dots and we end up with a Christian that's just confused. Here we are, we find these men being distracted from their ultimate pursuit, which is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. One reason that these men had made the, God of none of, uh, made the word of God of none effect to them is they become determined to be the overseers of implementing their own preferences. Number two, these men had become distracted in their own pursuit of Jesus Christ. And number three, when the word of God becomes of no effect to us, it will be because we become dismissive of the weightier matters of the law. Verse number 10. The Bible says, For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father and mother, let him die the death. Now, I don't know about you. Verse number 10 is pretty cut and dry. In fact, teenagers for years have been looking for ways to get around this verse, have they not? Honor thy father and mother. And we try to dismiss it. But at the end of the day, it's pretty clear. You are, as a child, to honor your father and your mother. Well, here in verse 10, it goes on, or verse 11, but you say, they've changed it. They've, they've altered it so that it meets their system of righteousness. You say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. Now certainly many of us would not understand immediately what this passage is saying. But what these people had done is the Pharisees had made a way whereby these people could... See, the word honor here is not talking about an honor with your mouth. In fact, it's not even talking about an honor with your actions. It is specifically speaking about honoring your parents in their old age. Taking care of your parents when they're not able to take care of you. And in most cases, this dealt specifically with financial resources. When your mom and dad were taking care of you and you were a baby, you ever heard your mom and dad say something like that? You don't know how many of your diapers I changed. Good, I don't want to know. It kind of grossed me out. 
But they do that for us when we're young so that when they're old, we would do the same for them if necessary. And when it says, honor thy father and mother, frankly, we've, we've misused it a little bit with teenagers. That's not what it was specific, specifically talking about. And so now these people, these, these people were ungrateful to their parents. And, and their parents had taken care of them when they were younger. But now it's their turn to take care of their parents. And they're on the hook because God's law, Moses' law says, honor your father and mother. And if you don't, you'll die of the death. Now, I don't know what dying the death is, but it sounds pretty bad, amen? I don't want to die of the death. I, I don't want to die, die, much less die the death, you know? <laughs> sounds like a Halloween term, die the death. But anyway, it's pretty cut and dry. But these people had made a way whereby they were, were excused from this responsibility. They would do this. Corbin specifically means a designated gift to God. Okay? They had disguised their responsibility in religiosity. They would say, well, I can't take care of my parents because when I die, all of my wealth and all of my resources are going to be given to the temple. And so their parents went untended, uncared for, And they got to enjoy their wealth. And when they were dead, it wasn't their problem anymore. And that's why in verse number, uh, 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 let's see, verse number 12, the Bible says, And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother, uh, making the word of God none effect through your traditions. He's responsible to take care of them. He's responsible to care for them. And yet you've dismissed it under this guise of, well, I'm giving my wealth to the Lord. The only problem was that only occurred after death. So they got to enjoy, let's just say, 70 years of easy time, easy living. All their wealth went to them and none went to their parents. What a shameful thing these people had done under the disguise of religion. God's law clearly stated, honor your father and mother. And they said, well, as long as you give it to God, you don't have to. What a shame. And now these people find themselves okay with disobeying God. They've made a system whereby they they reduce the weightier matters of the law, the spirit of the law, if you will, abiding by the jot and tittle of the law, the specifics of the law. It's like they had their attorney go over Moses' law with a fine-tooth comb and find any loophole that they could get out of so that they didn't have to feel responsible for abiding by it. The Bible speaks of the same group of people. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. They were so focused on doing the little things that they had missed the entire reason for the law. In caring for themselves and making sure that their religion was 100% on the up and up, they neglected their fellow man. Now you read the Gospels. 
and you follow the life and footsteps of Jesus, and you tell me when he was more distracted with religion than he was helping his neighbor. How many times do we find Jesus en route to go somewhere or be somebody for some people and somebody get in his way almost? I'm kind of reminded of the woman who touched the hem of his garment. Don't you remember that story? He's on his way to Jairus' house. I mean, Jairus deserves this. And oh wait, he feels, he feels something. He feels something different. And all his disciples, he looks at them and he says, Who touched me? And, and they say, Lord, are you kidding me right now? I mean, everybody's touching you. Look at the press, Lord. There's so many people around. They're all wanting to touch you. They're all wanting to talk to you. He said, no, this one was different. And they almost speed him through the process. He looks down at that woman and takes time for her. Remember the man that was, the, the, the person that was being stoned and, and Jesus went and he, and he knelt in the sand and he looked at all those people and they said, but Lord, this man needs to be stoned. And, and Jesus says, but wait, I want the person in this crowd who is perfect to be the first one to cast a stone. You know what Jesus exercised the entire time he was on this earth? The spirit of the law. He was the law. He lived out the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. So many times we get distracted with tying our neckties, making sure that our kids are listening to the right kind of Christian music, that we miss the weightier matters of the law, which is our kids' interactions with our other kids. We, we let our kids come to church in their beautiful little dresses and we comment on how beautiful they are and yet they are mean as, as, a, as a, just mean to their fellow classmates. You go to the nursery and you see one kid in the corner crying and your kid's over there in their foo-foo dress acting like everything's fine. We do the same thing, don't we? We come to church prettified, looking good so that everybody can see us, and yet we never take time to go maybe listen to somebody's problem. Maybe lift a burden, maybe walk a mile in someone else's shoes. That is not what Christ did. And the reason the Word of God had meant nothing to these people is frankly they missed the reason for it, which is to teach you how to act like Him. They missed it. This evening, friend, I want to encourage you, don't miss the value of God's Word in your life. You know, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know what that Word was? The Bible tells us later on in the book of John 1, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Word was the living Word. Well, no longer do we have the living word to look at. He's no longer on this earth. But you know what Peter said? Peter, the guy that was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the guy that saw all the miracles, he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. James put it like looking into the glass, seeing yourself. And he says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. 
Don't be like these Pharisees and ignore the value of God's word, throwing it on your neighbor, shoveling it on them as if it's their responsibility to keep it. But embrace God's word and the changes it can have in your life.